Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The title here is Restoring the Image. The idea of restoring the image that was lost at the fall. In Genesis, humans are depicted as bearing the image as a plurality, right? Male and female. So if you look at Genesis 1.26, let's read there. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So whatever else we might say about the image, first of all, it's a plurality. There's two. It's not singular. Man there is just the the word for human. And what it means to be human is male and female. And whatever else we can say, it includes the quality of relationship in many directions. First of all, relationship to God. If you think about the image, you know, the original image is God's interpersonal relationship in the Trinity. So he says, let us. And then the idea is that that plurality is shared in humanity. And so where the divine image is through the persons of the Trinity, the human image is found in the plurality of male-female, but also within the relationship to other people, the relationship to God, and the relationship to creation. And so if we say the original image is male and female, it also means that embodiment is included into this, right? We do not have the image, in other words, apart from the drives, the needs, the capacities, the delights of organic existence. What we're fighting here is a kind of dualistic notion of the body. The body is often seen as the enemy of the spirit. Well, that's clearly not true here in this depiction, I think, in both the Old and the New Testament. And certainly in Jewish thought, there is no distinction then once you say this, that the flesh or the body is integrated with what it means to be spirit, then when we talk about spiritual death and physical death, there's no distinction. The corruptibility of the flesh, of human weakness and death, are conjoined in their alienation from the Creator. And so humans bear their humanity their spirituality as male and female as a plurality. And of course, male, female, this refers not simply to marriage, but it certainly refers to that, to the human family, to human culture, to human history. They're not something separate from the image of God and man. And in fact, this is the sweep of history, right? This is the story of the Bible, the original image were given at creation and it it will be restored and that's the depiction in the book of Revelation. This is the biblical story. Male, female then is that that alienation 
is ultimately resolved in Christ and the church. Christ as groom, the church as bride. Now, how we think of this, you know, original male, it's not an oppositional difference, male-femaleness, but an identity. This is the way that Paul describes it, an identity through interdependence. He says in 11.11 of 1 Corinthians, neither is woman without man, nor man without woman, but they are from and through one another. And this interdependence, it holds together through God, that is the two, will ultimately be made one, this is Paul in Ephesians, through Christ and the church. And so if man is in the image of God, a repetition of that image, it will be through the first and primary difference, I believe, of being created male and female. And so it's not an oppositional repression of the other. It's not an, an obliteration of difference. And it's not through some sort of self-sameness. And so to say that the one is not without the other is to preserve the individual identity of each while positing each as internal to the other. I'm describing human, healthy human relations here. And so the image is not, it's not simply an ability. We wouldn't exclude certain abilities like using language, but it's not summed up in that. But it must be inclusive of all that man is able to do in his relational capacities. The word here, selim, demuth, in his image and likeness, it connotes, first of all, that God sees his image reflected in human beings, and then they understand themselves as image reflectors. That is, that they understand themselves through the eyes of God, that God himself is there in the relationship. And so the original image of God and man is within from a divine perspective in the unity of male and female. And this then is going to be fulfilled in Christ and the church, right? I've just described to you fall and redemption, but I've described it to you in and through male, female. I think that's primary to the biblical story. Now, if we go from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, we kind of move from divine perspective. In Genesis 2, we take a kind of interior perspective of the human subject. It says that in there we have a prolonged depiction, you know, that a deep sleep is caused to fall upon Adam, and Adam loses some part of himself. We really don't know what part, but from out of his side that he's wounded, we might say, and of course this, the church, is going to attach great significance to the wound of Adam because from out of that womb comes the woman, but of course from out of the wound of Christ comes the church. And so many have seen the completion of creation described, the completion of man by the creation of woman in Karl Barth's depiction is not only one secret, but it's the secret, the heart of all the secrets of God the Creator, the whole inner basis of creation, God's whole covenant with man, which will later be established, realized, and fulfilled historically. He says it's prefigured in this event. And so the secret, the image, the death of Christ, the founding of the church, 
God is the unifying creative power of the image. This one man, Ma'ish, man, is completed by Isha. The Hebrew gets it more beautifully. The, the two words are the same, but the two are one through God. Think here also of the Song of Songs. We don't often preach from the Song of Songs. It's too erotic, you know. But of course, it's there, right? It's in our canon of Scripture. And what is depicted is that the flame, the kind of the height of this love affair between this couple, the flame of Yahweh himself is there, it says. This is the culminating moment. That love of a right kind is a flame not kindled by man, but kindled by God. And so this means that image bearing is integral to human relations of every kind, including sexual relations, family relations, marriage relations, relationship with God. Now, we don't want to get too carried away here because male-female is characteristic of all creatures, right? We just see it throughout creation. And so it's simultaneously that which humans share with other creatures. So it connects us to God, or it's there in our relationship to God, but it's also there in our relationship to the world. And so human spirituality, bearing the divine image, and human creatureliness, we wouldn't want to reduce it to gender, but both are very much interconnected to gender. They pertain, gender pertains throughout. So that both human depravity, you know, the idolatrous religion will often be connected with depraved sexuality, and the heights of spirituality will also then find expression in human sexuality. And so, you know, in the Old Testament, that Paul sums up, I think, the Old Testament depiction in Romans 1. I think that's all he's doing there. He's saying he's describing the fall of man. And he describes it as involving idolatrous religion comes. They exchange the image, the tselem, and they make their own tselem, right? That's what an idol is, same word. And they now are the image makers, and this results in sexual misorientation. And so the very notion of tselem, demuth, you know, image, likeness, that the self relates to itself. There's reflexivity in this, but the way this reflexivity was interrupted or understood originally was that we see ourselves in the mirror provided by God, but now we are reflexively looking at ourselves. I think you can think of idolatry in that fashion. Maybe this fits in Japan better because every idol, every Shinto shrine actually has a mirror. That is the, the thing that's there. The word Selim, think of in the Isaiah when the man's carving out on a piece of wood, he cuts it in two. With half of it, he cooks his lunch. With the other half, he fashions an idol. That fashioning, that Selim, that idol, He's making his own image. We are idol factories. We are image makers. Rather than God being our source of image and our fallenness, we become the source. There's a kind of sense in which we can look at idolatry and better understand what the image would be like once we restore it. The idol, the image, you know, is disconnectedness from God 
and self, and when Paul depicts this, he's going to use the word ego, I. The I there is the image. What happens to the I? I am crucified. It is no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives within me. The second thing is that man is the originator of the image, and so there is a, a loss of perspective, of the divine perspective in our own self-understanding. And it's in fact blocked by idolatry. And this is part of what's happening with the prophets, that they come onto the idolatrous scene and they introduce the view of God, the perspective of God. And it's often depicted in pornographic terms, that there's something shameful happening under the covers. And the prophet pulls back the covers and brings God's eye view onto the scene, bringing about shame and repentance. And so the prophets bring the divine perspective back into the image making, we might put it that way. The original image is one of male-female unity. We also see this illustrated in idolatry. I don't know how familiar you are in Missouri with idols, but in Japan you see a little idols on every little street corner. There's a little Bodhisattva or a little Buddha. But that little Buddha is actually a phallic symbol. And idols then go back to, and this is depicted in Ezekiel, Probably you won't hear a sermon on certain portions of Ezekiel. It's just too pornographic. But what he's saying is the idol is this big phallic symbol. It may have literally been that. And we know in the history of idolatry that that is often the, the symbol. And the depiction of the idolaters is adulterers. And that they're panting after this idol in a kind of, you know, the sex, it's not really eroticism or sexuality. The sexuality is in simply, it's a kind of metaphor there for something that's even deeper than that. And Paul will pick it up, the New Testament will pick it up, and just call that covetousness or desire, which is idolatry. In other words, the idolatry is an expression of the desire. But what's depicted then in the idol is the separation between male and female. You can't bring those two things together. There is no sexual relationship in idolatrous religion in the sense that it's an impossibility of relationship. This may sound strange to you. You know, why human sacrifice? Because the idolatrous scene is in some way just a mode to exponential desire, that the desire becomes all-consuming. And so Ezekiel pictures Israel lusting after her lovers, whose genitals were like those of donkeys, whose omission was like that of horses. The idolater scene is all about looking, right? And the bigger the better. We live near the world's largest idol in Japan. In fact, you could walk into the idol. You could even go to the bathroom in the idol. Uh, it was that big. It was this huge Buddhist structure. And so the whole point in idolatry is for looking and overwhelming the sight. I think sometimes we confuse what's happening in Christianity with idolatry. Is Christ for our eyes to look at? 
or for our ears to be heard. Those are two very different things. And idolatry is very much caught up in the human gaze, dispossessed then of the divine gaze. The whole point is looking, absorbing, and then suddenly somebody's looking at you, looking. There's a dispossession of the idolatrous scene. Paul says in Colossians 3.5, idolatry is another name for desire or greed. Idolatry creates an impossible object. It creates a kind of impossible lust. It's religion gone bad, but I think that in, in our point here is that we can see that it's also the image gone bad. The whole imagery of the idol is a depiction of alienation. This is a religion in which alienation is accentuated. The other thing, of course, is the idol is not personal. It's not open to relationship. And I think that is characteristic of us in our alienation that what we would be in pursuit of is an object. This, by the way, gets at not just religion, but psychology, that this is what people tell us about children who see their own image. They, too, are caught up in what is called the mirror stage, and they pursue themselves as an object. There's the problem, right? Enough a problem, but how do you solve the problem? The marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the culmination of human spirituality. This is depicted in Matthew. It's depicted in Revelation. It's there in John in chapter 2. This culminating wedding feast is the reconciliation of humankind with God. But it's also simultaneously, and this is there through Revelation 19 to 21, It's the reconciliation of interpersonal relationships, intrapersonal within ourselves, and a relationship to creation inclusive of reconciliation to God. The problem of gendered relations, male-female, is resolved through Christ as the groom and the church as bride. This is not just part of the biblical story. This is the biblical story. Colossians 1, 20 to 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. Christ, again, is not an object for the eye, but we, as it says in Revelation, are clothed in Christ. We're unified with Christ. This is John 17, 21, that all of them, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The one flesh relationship is fulfilled in Christ and the church. This is what Paul says, Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. For this reason, he's quoting Genesis here. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church, Paul says. A similar passage from Ephesians depicting this reconciliation. He himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility 
By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Paul uses two illustrations here, but they're the same thing. That is that there's alienation dividing male-female resolved in Christ. There's alienation between Jew and Gentile, that's just everybody, and that's undone in Christ. And so gender problems, we might say, are at the center of the human problem. This is certainly the depiction of the curse, and we don't want to mistake the curse for a prescription. Male dominance, he will rule over you. That is a product of sin. That's not a product of God. And female desire, again I'm referencing Genesis 3.16. Salvation then is depicted as undoing that curse. And it's a primary motif in the New Testament. The two shall become one. That's what Paul's quoting in, in Ephesians. And the fulfillment of marriage must mean that male-female relations cannot be understood apart from understanding who God is, what the human predicament is, and the manner in which we're delivered from out of that predicament. So, very big things here. This is the universal human problem but very tiny things. This is each of our individual problems, and we all kind of feel this in relationships. The role of women in church leadership, the relation of husband and wife. I believe that we cannot isolate this problem from the narrative sweep of Scripture. And if we do, what's happened, I'm afraid? We've taken what we might think is kind of a side issue, the role of women, how marriage works. And we've defined that, but ironically, we often define that without depicting what salvation is about. It's remaking that basic relationship. Look at Romans 7, 1 to 4. This just captures the whole scope of salvation, damnation, or alienation. So in 7, 1 to 4, he's talking about the law. And there is a misorientation to the law. But the way he describes it is, yes, but it, this misorientation can be described as a marriage problem. There's this woman who would consort with another man, a man other than her husband. And while her husband is still alive, this consorting would be to break the law. This is his illustration, not simply of this one woman's problem. He's saying this is the human problem. We're all in this position. And so what do you do? Well, you could kill your husband. And the reason I'm saying that is that's often what people think the resolution is. Because what does the husband represent? He represents the law. Is the resolution to abolish the law, to kill the husband, or to wait until he dies so that you can consort with another? This is obviously not the answer. The two realms of knowing, first of all, the knowing the law with the mind, this is Paul's depiction, and knowing in the Hebraic sense, when Adam knew Eve, that sexual relations, they had a child, those two realms of knowing have come into conflict. And I think what Paul is saying, that as long as we're under the law, as long as we're outside of Christ, everybody outside of Christ is under the law, those two things cannot be coordinated. And the point of the illustration 
is to deploy the conflict between sex and marriage is to show that the law dictates and determines every aspect of this relationship. This woman, whatever she does, doesn't resolve the problem. She can knuckle under the law. She can be submissive, passive, you know, thinking of relationship to the husband. She can become the good wife. But that's not Paul's answer. Or she can transgress the law. She can have her paramours. She can consort. But transgressing is not the resolution either. The problem, of course, we've got to get the problem straight. The problem is the oppressive axis of the law, the authority, the husband, the punishing law. The law, in this sense, coordinates, it interferes, it determines even the most intimate relationship. What is the point of the law? The problem is not the law. The point is the problem is alienation, right? And the law that accentuates that. The domineering authoritarian law, husband, calls all the shots, determines identity, married, unmarried, you know, living, dead. What Paul is describing there is it doesn't matter whether, you know, passive self-effacement, open rebellion, both describe life under the law, which Paul equates with sin. He pictures an unresolvable problem and then resolves it in the next verse. Look down at verse 5 in chapter 7, verse 4 and 5. It's to be found in coordinating the two kinds of knowing. The knowing of the mind and the knowing of the body. By becoming the bride of Christ. You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. You're made to die to this punishing, alienating orientation to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another. Here is the completion of the promise in Genesis. This enables a joining to another, he goes on to say, in order that we might bear fruit for God. He's describing redeemed humanity is not only the bride of Christ, but pregnant with the fruit of true love. And the attempt to gain control, to submit or manipulate in an orientation to the law, that's all undone. The authoritarian, the submissive, the passive, that's all suspended. And I hope what you're recognizing here, I'm describing two things at once. I'm describing a typical marriage relationship, how that could work. But I think the typical marriage relationship is just how we do everything. That is, that is characteristic of the human predicament. Christ as husband represents a suspension of the force of the law. And being found in Christ as bride brings an end. That's the whole picture in chapter 7. There is this agonistic struggle in which one is masochistic or sadistic. And that is undone. It's suspended. Self-alienation and alienation from others, I believe, are not resolved apart from this reconciliation to be had in Christ. This is at once global. It's the universal problem. But we all feel it. It's very specific. This universal redemption pertains to very specific relationships. And this is why, Paul, I'll close with this. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. 
Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.